the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to learn how to act right after all. When y'all going to get tired of that joke? Never? It's been like, this is the 11th week and y'all still laughing at that joke? Boy. Say, Pastor, give us a new joke every now and then. Tonight is part 11 and we're going to entitle it Knocked right off our high horse. <laughs> Knocked right off our high horse. When I was, I guess I was 19 or 20 years old, I was in my third year of college, and I'd played two years of junior college base, baseball, and then uh, my scholarship fell through or whatever, or they wanted me to go somewhere far off, and I just wanted to stay in Memphis, so I... I enrolled in Memphis State. It was Memphis State back at the time. It wasn't University of Memphis. And uh, I was kind of over college, if you know what I mean. I was kind of over school. I was doing more cheating than I was doing studying. I was sort of cheating my way through college, and I didn't show up half the time. I was just trying to do just enough to get by. And in fact, after that year, I didn't go to college anymore. But I remember walking into a speech class one time, totally unaware that I was supposed to have a speech ready for that day. <laughs> and this is back before I had ever done any public speaking. And so the teacher calls me up, and I go up, and I'm thinking, how am I going to cheat my way through this? You, I can't look off of somebody else's paper to do this. I brought me a little notebook I had up there like I had, like I had a speech prepared. So I, just, I started telling the story, which is, you know, I'm a storyteller. Of course, back then, it was all new to me, but how many remembers that story I told not too long ago about my friend running from the police on his motorcycle, and if he'd have had third gear and a back brake, he would outrun him, as Mama said. Does anybody remember that story? Anyway, I told it recently. Well, anyway, that, that was fresh back then. That had just recently happened, so I said, I'll just tell a story and try to fake my way through this speech stuff. It was supposed, supposed to have a point to your speech, and I... I said, I'll come up with one as I go along. So I was looking like I was reading my speech, and, and I was just telling this story that had recently happened. And uh, the story goes, anyway, he's running from the police, and it's a true story. He was on his motorcycle, and he got up, and he had run from them so long that they finally boxed him in, and he got up on the sidewalk, and one of the policemen threw their door open, and he ran into the door, and he flipped, doing about 55 miles an hour. And uh, so I got to that part, and then... The inspiration hit me for what my message was, my, my cause was for this speech. I'm going to talk about police brutality. <laughs> <laughs> because, you see, back in those days, I was on the wrong side of the law. You know, I lived in a place where, you know, we was a bunch of hoodlums, let's be honest. And, you know, 
It isn't like that anymore, but back in those days, the police seemed to be our enemies because we were always running from the police. So I told the story about how, you know, how he, they opened the door and, and he went flying and then they ran over there and they grabbed him and they got a few licks in. Now back then, that was before they had the video cameras and of course the cops would get a few licks in back then, you know, to express their distaste for them, you know, having to chase him for, you know, 20 minutes. But anyway, so I was hammering the point about the cops are this and they're, you know, I can't believe and, and, and I thought I was doing so good. When I got through, I really expected my teacher to, you know, give me a round of applause and the people to give me a standing ovation. I said, I'm pretty good at this public speaking stuff, you know, telling stories. And so I looked over at my teacher, and guess what she said? No, she didn't say that. She said, but I'll tell you later. <laughs> yeah, we'll find, we'll find out the rest of this story a little later. But right now in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, We're finally getting to the Apostle Paul. The first eight chapters of the book of Acts, we've talked about the apostles, and we've talked about Stephen and Philip and a lot of people. And at the end of the eighth chapter, we talked about Saul, that's his name before he was changed to Apostle Paul, that he was consenting at the death of Stephen, and the people laid their coats at his feet. Well, we're picking up from there, and verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats. Everybody understands that Saul would later become the Apostle Paul, right? Everybody understands that? Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, him being a Pharisee himself. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. You know, before we were called Christians, we were originally called followers of the way. He wanted to bring them, men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. You see, the Apostle Paul, before he was Apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he thought he was actually doing God a favor by killing Christians, by imprisoning them. He, he followed the strict law, the Old Testament law, and he was not willing to accept that God had sent his son Jesus as the Messiah. The, the Jews didn't receive him as the Messiah. They didn't receive his grace, and so they were still under the law. So he thought he was doing God a favor by getting rid of this new sect called the way. As he was approaching Damascus on this trip, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul's probably thinking, I'm not persecuting you. Who, who are you? <laughs> I'm persecuting this, this way, this church people. Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. You see, if you're messing with Jesus' kids, you're messing with Jesus. You're messing with his church, you're persecuting me. He takes that personally. Anyway, Verse 6 says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Can you say Paul was getting an attitude adjustment? <laughs> he was getting a mindset reset. He was getting a stinking thinking makeover. Because he hadn't been doing right. He was getting a reacclimation to reality. 
A resume rewrite was about to take place. God was fixing to make a big change in Saul of Tarsus. But, but Saul was sincere about God. He was sincere about what he believed. He sincerely thought he was doing right, but he was sincerely wrong. And that can happen, can it? You can be sincere. You can pray. You can face Mecca and pray all day long. But there ain't no God up there called Allah that's listening. You can be sincerely wrong. Proverbs 21, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 2, said every way of a man is right in his own eyes. So though we may be wrong, it's hard to convince us of that fact because we always think we're right. Right? Jesus had summed up the typical man's perspective when he said that we strain out a net while trying to swallow a camel. <laughs> That's how much we don't have a clue about things. I try to convince Brother Tom that Jesus has got a sense of humor. We strain out a net but swallow a camel. I think what he's saying is what we don't know will probably, what we do know will probably fill a thimble. Even the smartest of us. And what, and what we do know can be severely tainted by our experiences in this life. So even if we know something, it can be tainted by the things that we've been through and we don't understand it correctly. You know, sometimes as a pastor, somebody will come to me and they'll say something along the lines of, my world is crumbling and I don't know what to do. And I'm no counselor, as many of you can attest. And I've only got, I didn't finish college, which I've already <laughs> confessed to. But most of the time, it doesn't take a counselor to sit there and listen. And that's what I do mostly. I'll listen. I'll say, what's going on? Tell me what's happening. And they'll just tell me all this stuff. And at the end, I'll probably say something along the lines like, two months ago, me and you was fishing, and this same thing was going on. What's changed? I don't know. I just feel bad. I just, it's usually just their perspective. It's just usually the way they're looking at it. Do you know, as human beings, we can get up happy and go to bed mad? Very easily. We can, we can start off good and end up bad and go back to good again before it's over with. For breakfast. We are so fickle. Sometimes we're just overcome with life one moment, and then the next moment, one little thing happens. You know, one little thing. We, our bottle top says we get a free Coke or something, and all of a sudden life is grand again. It just takes just one little thing. To either send us tumbling or get us back on our feet. Usually it's just a matter of perspective. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now unbelievers, on the other hand, their world is crumbling. They are without hope in the world. I don't know how they do it. Don't know how they lay their head on the pillow at night. I remember doing that before I was saved and it was just too much pressure on me. I'm so glad I know what I know now. I'm so glad that Jesus loves me. 
And I can be assured of that. The unbelievers need more than just a perspective change. They need a whole paradigm shift. Say paradigm shift. You ever said that word before? I, I say it a lot because I heard it preached one time, and it made sense to me. I'm going to tell you what paradigm means. It's spelled P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M. In the dictionary, it says a paradigm is a framework. Imagine two-by-fours making a room or something. A framework containing the basic assumptions, the ways of thinking, and mythology that are commonly accepted. So in other words, if you're within this paradigm, this is the way you see things. These are your basic assumptions. This is the way you think. It's all wrapped up within here. This, this is your view. This is your worldview, so to speak. This is your paradigm. This is the way you're seeing it. Now, a paradigm shift would be described as a fundamental change in our approach and underlying assumptions. That means you come out of that room and go into another room, a different way of viewing the world. You don't limit yourself. You come out of the box. Is that making any sense? It's like, it's like me yelling, Touchdown! At the game. But it's at a basketball game or a baseball game. See, it's, I'm, I need to get to the wrong ballpark or all my reasoning is totally skewed and makes no sense. And see, unbelievers, they're trying to make sense of this ballpark that they're in. We're using ballpark a lot lately, aren't we? They're trying to make sense of the ballpark that they're in, but they don't understand the game. So they don't know the rules. So they're yelling touchdown at a baseball game. You know, the world's smartest guy arguing the wrong premise is still wrong. I don't care if he's a lawyer and, you know, he, he can slicker his way out of in any courtroom and get what, what he wants, you know, typically. But if he's on the wrong ball field, if he's arguing based on a wrong premise, then he's still just wrong. You know, atheists can add another Ph.D. to their name. They can add a few more billions of years to their theories of evolution. They can carbon date every rock on the planet, which they try to do, but they're never going to be able to explain away the longings in their heart. They're never going to be able to explain why their heart's even beating. Where did that spark come from? Where did life begin? They can't explain the things that, that they really want to explain. They can't understand the origins of their own conscience. Why do they feel bad when, when they act morally unacceptable? And why are they trying so hard to make excuses for why that conscience is bothering them? You know, all this other ideas about where man came from, the Big Bang and all these things, is a... It's an unconscious effort on their part to explain their existence without a responsibility to their creator. Without, a, without them feeling bad for their sin. They love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come out, and so they must justify 
themselves. But their whole paradigm, their whole reasoning, their whole premise is wrong. And people will do anything to not have to admit they're wrong. <laughs> it isn't easy to do, is it? I've kind of got used to it. I do it all the time. But, <laughs> but no, it's called, it's called human pride. And it's one of the ugliest things that there is. Human pride. We won't admit that we're wrong. We won't humble ourselves and learn. Now, pride, that's the subject I'm real good at. I'm probably the best teacher on pride there is. <laughs> if there was a PhD to be had, I would probably have it in pride because I'm that good. <laughs> I'm, of course, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But there are times where Angie still has to tell me, you know, guy, not everything is about you. Have you ever heard that? Thank God for Angie. <laughs> but really, I'll be honest, I'm a human, and when somebody tells me a story or some, some, something's wrong, I'll start thinking, how does that affect me? It's all about me. So my next thought is going to be, I'm going to tell you my side of the story. It's like, I don't, okay, say your piece so I can tell you my side of the story. I'm not really listening. Just get through with it. So, you know, we can be like that as humans. <laughs> She says, this is not the world according to Garp, and you're not Garp. Anybody remember that movie? <laughs> but I don't feel so bad. I don't feel so bad because I know it's a human condition, and we all suffer from pride. It's, it's an enemy of our holiness. It's an enemy of God. It's what got the devil kicked out of heaven, and it's been the the flame that ignites sin in the earth ever since. Pride is not a, a good-looking thing. It's very ugly. But I do feel better that the Apostle Paul, you know, had enough of it to, that he got knocked off his high horse too. So <laughs> that's what happened on the way to Damascus. He got knocked off his high horse when that light shone down on him. So we're all in this together, but it's not something we give into. There's a story in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 25, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just kind of summarize it. There's a guy named Nabal. He's a wealthy landowner. And, I, you know, he's got his place. And David, he's running from Saul before he became King David. He's running from the King Saul because King Saul's trying to kill him. He's got these 400 guys, his misfits, that would become later become his mighty men. And they're following him around and uh, doing whatever he needed them to do. Well, they're staying, I guess, in proximity to this Nabal guy, this rich landowner. And they're taking, helping Nabal take care of his wells and stuff, making sure bandits don't uh, fall upon him and such. Well, Nabal, it's time to shear his sheep. And he's shearing his sheep. And uh, when they did that back in those days, they would have celebrations. And they would kill some of the sheep. And they would eat. And they would party. And... And have a good time. Well, David sends his men to Nabal and says, tell Nabal that, you know, we've been good to you. We've been a good neighbor. Would you mind if we kind of parted with you? You know, could, could we have some food? You know, because they're out kind of out in the wilderness and they don't have m much means. And so they're asking, you know, can, can we fellowship? Can we 
have some of your food and, and drink and so forth and, and enjoy the, your time of sharing along with you. Well, the, David's men tell Nabal this, and Nabal, listen, who is this David guy you're talking about? I don't, I don't care anything about a David. Isn't he the one that ran from the king? You know, anybody can do that. I don't, he starts bad-mouthing David to his men, probably in front of his own men, trying to make himself look big and tough. Well, David's men go back and tell David. David isn't one to trifle with. David straps on his sword and says, All you men do likewise. Before this day's over, we're going to make sure there ain't a living soul on the ball's place. And so he was fixing to go take care of business. But meanwhile, some of Nabal's men told his wife, Abigail, what had happened. The Bible says Abigail was a beautiful woman, and she was, uh, what did it say? She was, she was smart, I'm trying to say, but she was, I'd have to look at what was that word that it used. But, but she was smart, and she was beautiful. And when she heard that, she said, oh, no, Nabal's a fool. My husband is a fool. She starts telling the servants, okay, get this ready, get this ready. And so they start putting loaves of bread and, and meat and, and figs and cakes and all kind of stuff. And they, they load these donkeys down, and they run them towards David's place. And they catch him on the way, thank goodness, before he got there. And she runs to David and bows down before him, oh, my Lord. Please hear your servant out. And she says, I am so sorry. My husband is a fool. He don't know what he's doing. Please have mercy on us. We have brought you gifts. You know, and she just lays it all out. She says, I know that you're a man of God, and I know that God honors you and everything. She says, please don't kill my husband because you don't want that blood on your hands. That'll go with you for everywhere you go, you know, because you just killed him out of anger, and that's not like you, my King David. And so she's, my Lord David. And so she's just... She's pleading for their lives. So David finally looks back and he says, you know, if you wouldn't have came, boy, I tell you what, I finna let him have it. But because you were so smart and you, you, know, you came and did what you did because of, because of your sake, we're going to let you live. But pride almost got Nabal killed. Say that, killed. K-I-L-T. Pride will get you killed. I bet you there was probably 200 people in America today killed because of pride. And I, I'm, I'm being honest, I bet you. With all the gun deaths and all the things going on in this world today, road rage, all that kind of stuff, pride will get you killed. Can't you just, can't you just picture Jesus? sitting at the right hand of the Father up in heaven, having to play Abigail for me every day. Father, don't, don't look at God. Just look at me. Just look at me. He's under my blood, you know. <laughs> he's under the blood. Just look at what I did. Don't look at him. I know he's... But Jesus is our intercessor. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And thank goodness that Jesus is up there for us because, I, you know... Pride is thinking in God's nostrils. So a question. Are there areas in your life where you're acting like Nabal right now? Are there areas in your life where you just, that you could be wrong about stuff, but you won't admit it? And if you were 
to realize that you were acting like Nabal, would you apologize? I thought I was wrong once. But I was mistaken. It was... Proverbs 11.2 said, Pride leads to disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. I'm hoping to prove that out one day. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, let's go ahead and turn there. Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 1, says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, if you're born again, you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. That is your first paradigm shift. When you got saved, you were no longer to be pecking around in the dust like chickens can't see above the cage. You were to be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus looking down at the big picture. We're big picture people now. We have come out of that little box of, oh, I've got 60, 70 more years to be prideful and to get all my stuff done. And I'm not going to think about death. No, 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 I want to hear that. Just like we used to be before we got, we, we got born again and the realities of heaven became real to us. And now we see things from a universal, godly perspective, right? Then it goes on to say, on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Verse 2, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. That is a perspective change. That is the way we begin to see life. The whole world was open to us in a paradigm shift. We don't think like the lost people think anymore. And we keep our eyes on whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are good, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, like it says, you know what? I just thought of this the other day. The Lord was telling me all the, the people that I've been meeting lately that are coming to me and saying, you know, my world's crashing and they need a perspective change. They just need to go to Philippians 4, verses 6 through 9. Most of them. Where it says that, to, to think on things that are good. To just turn your eyes to Jesus. When you magnify the negative then it makes you feel yucky. What we mo most of us really need is just to take a few moments before we start our day and just start giving thanks to God. And then after breakfast, take a few minutes and just start thanking God. Then once you get in the car on the way to work, just start thanking God. Then all day at work, just start thanking God. Then when you get off work and come home, then you start thanking God. Yeah. Really, we just, it, his praise continually on your lips. That is the secret to having the right perspective. 
We have so much to be thankful for. What is it really? Because we don't have three vacuum cleaners or we only have a 65-inch TV? I mean, really, what is it that we're so upset about? I don't mean to make it light of anybody's issues because there's some doozies. There are some doozies. But that's why you've got to thank God all the more for what you do have. When you lose somebody, you've got to thank God for the time that you did have. The, the time that's coming and you'll see them again. There's so many reasons. There's always a reason to see the glass half full instead of half empty. There's always a reason to rejoice. And that's what it's saying here. Our world becomes so big. When Jesus comes in, we become part of the kingdom of heaven. It's a whole different way of seeing things. Have you noticed the things of this world are 180 degrees opposite of the things of God? I mean, I could go through a list of, of everything that God says and the world doesn't agree with. But if we'll keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll study his word, we can live Heaven on earth. Really? I mean, the kingdom of God, know you not that the kingdom of God is within you? It's not something far off. When you gave your heart to Jesus, think about this. Heaven began for you. Heaven is on the inside of you now. Most of us think of it as some far off place. When I die, I'll get to heaven. If God lives on the inside of you, welcome to heaven It is a matter of working it out. We see through a glass darkly now. We don't have everything all the way we will, but we work out our salvation. Work it out harder if, it's, if, if you're going through a hard time. Work it out. Work out that salvation, that joy. Stir yourselves up in the Lord. Life will take a new perspective. I'm going to show you a video. This is done by the world. This isn't even a Christian video. But I thought it was pretty neat, and I'll explain it once you take a look at it.
we're supposed to see, we're supposed to be the ones that see things differently. That was made by Apple. That, I don't know if I see things the way they see things. <laughs> but they have a better perspective in this video than a lot of Christians I see. They're wanting to make things better. But I, I, I liked how things didn't, you, you couldn't understand it until you got the right perspective. And that's the way your life is. It isn't going to make sense until you see things from the right perspective. And we have to see things through Jesus. Where do we keep our eyes? On Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one that wrote the story of our lives. And we have to keep our eyes on him so that we can get through the pages of our life. And get to where we need to get. Christians should know where to find a different way of thinking. A different way of thinking that will really change the world. Here is a different way of thinking. This is your different way of thinking that will really change the world in which you live. Amen? 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's talk about the Bible just one moment. I love this scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 Because it says all scripture not just the red letters not just the New Testament not just the parts that you've read all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. See, that will change the world. When his people are equipped, his people know how to do right. They're not doing wrong because they know what wrong is. They have the right paradigm and they have the right perspective. And they, we get that because the scriptures are inspired by God. They're God's basic instructions before us leaving earth. Right? You've heard that. That's what it is. It's teaching us how to think that we can have the mind of Christ. It's right. It's tight. It's radical. But it's practical. It's recommended daily allowance of absolute truth each day. You need to take it. You need to chew on it. It's a plumb line by which we measure all our ideas. We don't just say, well, I think that'll work. I think that would be okay. What does the Word of God say? We consult the Word of God. Well, let's go back to our text. And we'll close after another hour or so. Back in Acts 9, we'll start back in verse 7. Um, Saul just got knocked off his high horse, right? He's, that's liable to happen to somebody who's persecuting God's church. That's liable to happen to somebody that's brave enough to put on his sword and fight against God. I don't know if I would be that brave. But of course, he didn't know he was doing that. 
He didn't know he was doing that. Acts 9, verse 7. Then the men with Saul stood speechless. Duh. For they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground. But see, Saul got knocked out. He got knocked off his high horse. But Saul doesn't wallow in his mistake. He, he knows something has happened here, but he's got enough sense to admit that whoever just knocked him off his horse is Lord. And he's got enough fortitude to get back up on his feet instead of lay there and say, well, I missed it, and I missed God, and I don't, I'm no good anymore. He jumped back to his feet. And when he opened his eyes, he was blind, so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. That's where he was going anyway. He remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. <laughs> we dog, Uncle Jed, you know, sent Saul to Straight Street to get straightened out. That's just like Jesus, isn't it? When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. Right now, Jesus? Yeah, I got him on the other line. You know, I don't know. That's funny. Jesus is, is telling, talking to a guy and saying he, he's got somebody else on the other line. That's pretty awesome. We know he can do that, but here's the case where you see it in the Bible. Okay, he's probably got millions of people on the other line at the same time. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him that he can see again. But Lord, says Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. He's been authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings and to well, as well as all the people of Israel. Ch say chosen instrument. chosen instrument. You know what? Your resume doesn't impress God. Your past doesn't depress God. <laughs> what you perceive your worth, how you think about yourself, doesn't deter God. God's calling on your life is the only thing that matters. That's what you'll answer for when you get to heaven. And he tells Saul, go! For you are God's chosen instrument. And he would say the same thing to you right here in Horn Lake, Mississippi. Go! Go! For you are God's chosen instrument. He's no respecter of persons. Now there's different callings or whatever, but you are called and we are all called to go. It, we need to step into the first phase of our ministry to find out where, he would, where would you send me, Lord? What would you have me do? Verse 16. Jesus says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And we know that Paul did suffer for the name of Jesus. But he said, I count it all as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus. Everything that he's been through, man, it didn't make a difference. It, it was just, it was nothing compared to the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And we know that he did take the message to the Gentiles and to kings. 
and to all of Israel. Now he's taking it to all the world through the New Testament where he wrote half of it. Many of these letters he wrote in jail, in hardship, suffering for the kingdom's sake. Just like Jesus said. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent to me to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God doesn't do much through people that ain't filled with the Holy Spirit. Did I say that out loud? But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He'll have everything He needs to help you to be everything He created you to be. Everything. There'll be nothing lacking. There'll be... You'll not get there and say, God, I couldn't get there because I didn't have any tools to work with. You wanted me to do something I couldn't do. won't be like that. You'll get to heaven and you'll realize, that's all I did with what, what you gave me? Stop evaluating yourself according to human standards. We're not mere humans anymore. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's to be abased or to bound, to, do it, to, be, to be full or hungry, whatever we need to do, whenever we need to do it. When he says go, we go. We do. Perform miracles. He said, the works that I do, greater works than these shall you do. Just go. Trust God. Live a life of faith. Get outside of the boat. Instantly, something like fell, uh, scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Of course, the baptism being a public declaration of your faith, of what has happened on the inside, that must have been hard for Saul. Because this man was sent here to kill Christians. He's a Pharisee. Everybody knows him back in Jerusalem. He's famous. Apparently, all that meant nothing to him after one brief encounter with Jesus on the road. Oh, back to that college speech I was going to tell you about. Okay, so I thought I'd hit on my message, yeah. And, you know, somewhere along the speech, I'm telling about those police. And I said, yeah, that'll be my message, police brutality. So I started talking about how bad the police were, how they set up roadblocks and just to get money and how they do this. And I was just really railing on the police because that's what I did back in those days. And so when I got through, I really thought, I did pretty good. I'm going to get an A on this. And I looked over at my teacher, and guess what she said? She didn't say nothing. And she was just kind of looking at me. Like, did, is that really written down? Is that really your speech? And then the, the, then the kids out in the audience, I figured they'd at least say, yeah, get them police good, you know. Yeah, brother, I'm with you. They all looked at me and said, What's wrong with police? We need police. Police keep us safe. Maybe, maybe your friend should have went to jail. And they just started berating me and going off on me. I'm like, what in the world? This was outside of my paradigm that I knew in the place where I lived. 
These people were on the side of the law. <laughs> so, needless to say, I got knocked off my high horse that day. <laughs> I was so stupid. I was just like Saul. I got caught on the wrong side of the law. I was on lawlessness side against the law. Saul was on the side of the law against grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were both on the wrong side of the law. Both of us got knocked off our high horse. So let's go back to that question. How many times have you been wrong in the past? Who's got a calculator? I don't know. How many times have you had course corrections? You, you're going good, and everything, but then something st starts. It's just, I don't know if it's the pull of this old fallen earth or something, but you, you, know, you take your hands off the wheel for five or six minutes, you reach back there to get a Coke or something, and by the time you turn around, you're in a ditch. How does that happen? You know, I, <laughs> does anybody in here think differently than they did 10 years ago? Are you a different person? Because, you know, I'm a different person than I was when I gave that speech. I'm on the other side of the law now. I love police officers. You know, as a pastor, I go to police events and stuff. We went and prayed over the police officers in Horn Lake recently. You know, I'm real nice when I try to talk them out of tickets these days. So I have changed over the years. You have changed over the years. Some of the things that you held dear to your heart that you would have picketed over in your teens or 20s, you think, man, I was stupid back then. So what does that tell you? Some of the stuff that you're thinking right now could be wrong. And if you live another 10 years, you may look back and say, I remember when Pastor God told me how stupid I was. That's not what I'm saying at all. No, but <laughs> so, my question is, how patient are we with others who are still on their high horse? I mean, because now that we know what we know, you know, especially with kids, I see it all the time. Parents, they expect their kids to know what they know. And they, they whoop them if they don't or something. It's like, give them a chance to be a kid and to learn things. They, you were a kid once. You know, people are at different levels. We're all going through different things. We all dealt a different hand of cards in life. We have different life experiences. We come from different backgrounds. Somebody was raised this. Somebody was raised that. You know, different cultures, different understandings, different paradigms, different perspectives. We have to all get along down here. And we have to be patient with those that are on their high horse because if we knock them off the high horse, we'll probably get sued and go to jail. Right? We have to pray for them. Be patient with people. Help people. We, we do what we can to help them see. But you know what? The next Apostle Paul might be rioting against the police somewhere in America right now. They might be studying astrology some college. They may be carbon dating every rock they can get their hands on to prove that God is not in existence. There's a lot of people out there running from truth in one form or another. They're all trying to mask 
over that hole in their heart and they're longing for Jesus and they don't, for different reasons. That's why God sees us so differently than we see each other. And God is so much more patient. You know how he can be more patient with one another? Because he sees the possibilities in each one of us. Callan, you can be the next Apostle Paul. We will change your name. We all have possibilities, un unlimited possibilities. The deeper we're willing to submit unto the hand of Jesus and say, have your way in me, the greater things that we can accomplish. So does it matter how you see yourself and stuff? In this? Yeah, of course. God doesn't want you down on yourself or anything like that. Do you feel worthless? I'm a real loser. I never really accomplished nothing. I'm too old now. I'm this. So at some point, they just become excuses. Some of us have so many PhDs before our name, we strut, you know. I'm so smart. Look at me. And so you, you got people that feel like they're worthless, and you got people that feel like they're the best thing since sliced bread. What we all need is a different perspective based on a new paradigm. The question should be, what are you worth to God? Don't ask yourself comparing to somebody else. Your question is, what are you worth to God? And what can you do through Christ? Not what can you do in your own strength. And in that regard, we all see ourselves light years below our true, eternal, godly value and potential. None of us. It's not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't grasp the life that, we, that is at our fingertips if we would begin to see things different. I was going to mention that so many people in our church here are beginning to have doors unlocked in their minds. They're beginning to see things. They're beginning to try things. They're getting outside of their comfort zone. They're saying, you know what, fear, shut up. I can do this. They're beginning to discover themselves in Christ, to understand that I am God's chosen instrument. I wouldn't be here. He wouldn't have saved me. He wouldn't have died on the cross for me if he wouldn't freely give me everything else. If you're not already surrendered to God's plan in your life, I would just suggest you get your thinking in the right ballpark. Maybe before you leave tonight. Just tell him, Jesus, here I am. Use me. You know, we were created by him, for him, through him. We live and move and have our being. None of it is about us. It's for His glory, His good pleasure did He create us. That human pride makes us think it has to be about us. 
me and Tom were preaching in the jail Sunday night. Two guys stood up to receive the Lord Jesus. They answered the altar call. They said the sinner's prayer, and Brother Tom said afterwards, he says, if you died right now, where would you go? One guy thought for a minute and put his head down and said, hell. Second guy heard him say that and said, hell. What happened from the moment that you were receiving salvation from Jesus and that few seconds, all of a sudden it became about you again? If it's about you, then it's not about the cross and you're not saved. It's all about Jesus. Am I taking you to a different paradigm shift? To a different box? To a broader horizon? You can take all the pressure off of your life right now. You don't have to be in any box. Some of you love Jesus so much that you wear yourself out trying to please him. Maybe doing things he didn't even ask you to do. Jesus would say, relax. We have one responsibility here on the earth, and that's to love him with all our heart. Just do what he says. We don't have to be anything but what he wants us to be. It's him that does the work in us and through us. Boy, I'm just now starting the message, and it's time to close. Maybe should have got there sooner. We could go on with that. But my, my advice tonight would be before you go to bed tonight, begin to thank Him. If you wake up to go pee tonight, thank Him on the way to the toilet. When you get up, before you get out of bed, thank Him. Look to Him. Trust in Him. When things ain't going your way or whether things are going perfect, it don't matter. It don't matter. There's one responsibility, to love Him and to obey Him. It's about Him. You'll not answer for Billy Graham's calling. You'll answer for yours. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.